Chapter Eleven, Part One of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Beth Ann. How I Found Livingston. Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Dr. Livingston. By Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter 11, Part 1 Through Yukuwendi, Uvenza, and Uha to Ujiji. We bade farewell to Mrera on the 17th of October to continue our route northwestward. All the men and I were firm friends now, all squabbling had long ceased. Bombay and I had forgotten our quarrel. The Kiringozi and myself were ready to embrace. So loving and affectionate were the terms upon which we stood towards one another. Confidence returned to all hearts, for now, as Mabruki Unyanyembe said, we could smell the fish of the Tanganyika. Unyanyembe, with all its disquietude, was far behind. We could snap our fingers at the terrible Murumbu and his unscrupulous followers. And, by and by, perhaps we may be able to laugh at the timid seer who always prophesied pretentious events, Sheikh, the son of Nasib. We laughed joyously as we glided in Indian file through the young jungle beyond the clearing of Mera, and boasted of our prowess. Oh, we were truly brave that morning. Emerging from the jungle, we entered a thin forest where numerous ant hills were seen like so many sand dunes. I imagine that these ant hills were formed during a remarkably wet season, when possibly the forest-clad plain was inundated. I have seen ants at work by thousands, engaged in the work of erecting their hills in other districts suffering from inundation. What a wonderful system of cells these tiny insects construct! A perfect labyrinth, cell within cell, room within room, hall within hall, an exhibition of engineering talents and high architectural capacity, a model city, cunningly contrived for safety and comfort. Emerging after a short hour's march out of the forest, we welcomed the sight of a murmuring, translucent stream swiftly flowing towards the northwest, which we regard with a pleasure which only men who have for a long time sickened themselves with that potable liquid of the foulest kind found in salinas, mubagas, pools, and puddle-holes, can realize. Beyond this stream rises a rugged and steep ridge, from the summit of which our eyes are gladdened with scenes that are romantic, animated, and picturesque. They form an unusual feast to eyes sated with looking into the depths of forests, at towering stems of trees, and at tufted crowns of foliage, we have now before us scores of cones dotting the surface of a plain which extends across southern Yukonongo to the territory of the Wafipa, and which reaches as far as the Rikwa Plain. The immense prospect before which we are suddenly ushered is most varied. Exclusive of conical hills and ambitious flat-topped and isolated mountains, we are in view of the watersheds of the Rongwa River which empties into the Tanganyika south of where we stand. 
and of the Malagarazi River, which the Tanganyika receives, a degree or so north of this position. A single but lengthy latitudinal ridge serves as a dividing line in the watershed of the Rungwa and the Malagarazi, and a score of miles or so farther west of this ridge rises another, which runs north and south. We camped on this day in the jungle, close to a narrow ravine with a marshy bottom, through the oozy, miry contents of which the waters from the watershed of the Rungwa slowly trickled southward towards the Rikwa plain. This was only one of many ravines, however, some of which were several hundred yards broad. Others were but a few yards in width, the bottoms of which were most dangerous quagmires, overgrown with dense tall reeds and papyrus. Over the surface of these great depths of mud were seen hundreds of thin threads of slimy ochre-colored water, which swarmed with animalcule. By and by, a few miles south of the base of this ridge, which I call Kosira from the country which it cuts in halves. These several ravines converge and debouch into the broad, marshy, oozy, spongy river of Yusensi, which tends in the southeasterly direction, after which, gathering the contents of the watercourses from the north and northeast into its own broader channel, it soon becomes a stream of some breadth and consequence, and meets a river flowing from the east, from the direction of Urore, with which it conflows into the Rikwa Plain, and empties about sixty rectilineal miles further west into the Tanganyika Lake. The Rungwa River, I am informed, is considered as a boundary line between the country of Usoa in the north and Ufipa on the south. We had barely completed the construction of our camp defenses when some of the men were heard challenging a small party of natives which advanced toward our camp, headed by a man who, from his garb and headdress, we knew was from Zanzibar. After interchanging the customary salutations, I was informed that this party was an embassy from Simba, who ruled over Kasira in southern Unyamwezi. Simba, I was told, was the son of Makasawa, king of Unyanyembe, and was carrying on war with Wazavira, of whom I was warned to beware. He had heard such reports of my greatness that he was sorry I did not take his road to Yukawende, that he might have had the opportunity of seeing me and making friends with me. But in the absence of a personal visit, Simba had sent this embassy to overtake me, in the hope that I would present him with a token of my friendship in the shape of cloth. Though I was rather taken aback by the demand, still it was politic in me to make this powerful chief my friend, lest on my return from the search after Livingston he and I might fall out. And since it was incumbent on me to make a present for the sake of peace, it was necessary to exhibit my desire for peace by giving, if I gave at all, a royal present. The ambassador conveyed from me to Simba, or the lion of Kazira, two gorgeous cloths, and two other dodai consisting of Marikani and Kaneka, and if I might believe the ambassador, I had made Simba a friend forever. On the 18th of October, breaking camp at the usual hour, we continued our march northwestward by a road which zigzagged along the base of the Kazira Mountains and which took us into all kinds of difficulties. We traversed at least a dozen marshy ravines, 
the depth of mire and water which caused the utmost anxiety. I sunk up to my neck in deep holes in the Stygian ooze caused by elephants, and had to tramp through the oozy beds of the Rungwa sources with any clothes wet and black with mud and slime. Decency forbade that I should strip, and the hot sun would also blister my body. Moreover, these morasses were too frequent to lose time in undressing and dressing, and, as each man was weighted with his own proper load, it would have been cruel to compel the men to bear me across. Nothing remained, therefore, but to march on, encumbered as I was by my clothing and accoutrements, into these several marcy watercourses, with all the philosophical stoicism that my nature could muster for such emergencies. But it was very uncomfortable, to say the least. We soon entered the territory of the dreaded Wazavira, but no enemy was in sight. Simba, in his wars, had made clean work of the northern part of Uzvira, and we encountered nothing worse than a view of the desolated country, which must have been once, judging from the number of burnt huts and debris of ruined villages, extremely populous. A young jungle was sprouting up vigorously in their fields, and was rapidly becoming the home of wild denizens of the forest. In one of the deserted and ruined villages I found quarters for the expedition, which were by no means uncomfortable. I shot three brace of guinea-fowl in the neighborhood of Masongi, the deserted village we occupied, and Ulamango, one of my hunters, bagged an antelope, called the Mabuala, for whose meat some of the Wanyamwezi have a superstitious aversion. I take this species of antelope, which stands about three and a half feet high, of a reddish hide, headlong, horn short, to be the Nzo antelope, discovered by Speak in Uganda, and whose Latin designation is, according to Dr. Scalator, Tragelaphus speechia. It has a short, bushy tail and long hair along the spine. A long march in a west-by-north direction, lasting six hours, through a forest where the sable antelope was seen, and which was otherwise prolific with game, brought us to a stream which ran by the base of a lofty canonical hill, on whose slopes flourished quite a forest of feathery bamboo. On the twentieth, leaving our camp, which lay between the stream and the canonical hill above mentioned, and surmounting a low ridge which sloped from the base of the hill cone, we were greeted with another picturesque view of cones and scarped mountains, which heaved upwards in all directions. A march of nearly five hours through this picturesque country brought us to the Mapokwa River, one of the tributaries of the Rungwa, and to a village lately deserted by the Wazavira. The huts were almost all intact, precisely as they were left by their former inhabitants. In the gardens were yet found vegetables, which, after living so long on meat, were most grateful to us. On the branches of trees still rested the lares and the penates of the Wazavira, in the shape of large and exceedingly well-made earthen pots. In the neighboring river one of my men succeeded, in few minutes, in catching sixty fish of the Silera species, with the hand alone. A number of birds hovered about the stream, such as the white-headed fish-eagle and the kingfisher, enormous snowy spoonbills, 
Abyss, Martins, etc. This river issued from a mountain clump eight miles or so north of the village of Mapokwa, and comes flowing down a narrow thread of water, sinuously winding amongst tall reeds and dense breaks on either side of the home of hundreds of antelopes and buffalo. South of Mapokwa, the valley broadens, and the mountains deflect eastward and westward, and beyond this point commences the plain known as the Rikwa, which, during the Masika, is inundated, but which, in the dry season, presents the same bleached aspect that plains in Africa generally do when the grass has ripened. Traveling up along the right bank of the Mapokwa on the 21st, we came to the head of the stream, and the sources of the Mapokwa, issuing out of deep defiles enclosed by lofty ranges. The Mabwala and the Buffalo were plentiful. On the 22nd, after a march of four hours and a half, we came to the beautiful stream of the Matambu, the water of which was sweet and clear as crystal, and flowed northward. We saw for the first time the home of the lion and the leopard. Hear what Frelagarth says of the place. Where the thorny brake and thicket densely filled the interspace of the trees, through whose thick branches never sunshine lights the place, there the lion dwells, a monarch, mightiest among the brutes. There his right to reign supremest, never won his claim disputes. There he layeth down to slumber, having slain and taken his fill. There he roameth, there he croucheth as it suits his lordly will. We camped but a few yards from just such a place as the poet describes. The herd-keeper who attended the goats and donkeys, soon after arrival in camp, drove the animals to water, and in order to obtain it they traveled through a tunnel in the break, caused by elephants and rhinoceros. They had barely entered the dark canvas passage, when a black-spotted leper sprang, and fastened its fangs on the neck of one of the donkeys, causing it from pain to bray hideously. Its companions set up such a frightful chorus, and so lashed their heels in the air at the feline marauder, that the leopard bounded away through the break, as if in sheer dismay at the noisy cries which the attack had provoked. The donkey's neck exhibited some frightful wounds, but the animal was not dangerously hurt. Thinking that possibly I might meet with an adventure with a lion or a leopard in that dark belt of tall trees, under whose impenetrable shade grew the dense thicket that formed such admirable coverts for the carnivorous species, I took a stroll along the awesome place with the gun-bearer, Kalulu, carrying an extra gun, and further a supply of ammunition. We crept cautiously along looking keenly into the deep dark dens, the entrances of which were revealed to us, as we journeyed, expectant every moment to behold the reputed monarch of the brake and thicket, bound forward to meet us, and I took a special delight in picturing, in my imagination, the splendor and majesty of the wrathful brute, as he might stand before me. I peered closely into every dark opening, hoping to see the deadly glitter of the great angry eyes, and the glowering, menacing front of the lion, as he would regard me. But alas, after an hour's search for adventure, I had encountered nothing, and I accordingly waxed courageous, and crept into one of these leafy, thorny caverns, 
and found myself shortly standing under a canopy of foliage that was held above my head fully a hundred feet by the shapely and towering stems of the royal mavuli. Who can imagine the position, a smooth lawn-like glade, a dense and awful growth of impenetrable jungle around us, those stately natural pillars, a glorious phalanx of royal trees, bearing at such sublime heights vivid green masses of foliage, through which no single sun-ray penetrated, while at our feet babbled the primordial brook, over smooth pebbles in soft tones befitting the sacred quiet of the scene. Who could have desecrated this solemn, holy harmony of nature? But just as I was thinking it impossible that any man could be tempted to disturb the serene solitude of the place, I saw a monkey perched high on a branch over my head, contemplating with something of an awestruck look, the strange intruders beneath. Well, I could not help it. I laughed, laughed loud and long, until I was hushed by the chaos of cries and strange noises which seemed to respond to my laughing. A troop of monkeys, hidden in the leafy depths above, had been rudely awakened, and, startled by the noise I made, were hurrying away from the scene with a dreadful clamor of cries and shrieks. Emerging again into the broad sunlight, I strolled further in search of something to shoot. Presently, I saw, feeding quietly in the forest which bounded the valley of the Matambu on the left, a huge reddish-colored wild boar, armed with most horrid tusks. Leaving Kalulu crouched down behind a tree, and my solar helmet behind another close by, that I might more safely stalk the animal, I advanced towards him some forty yards, and, after taking a deliberate aim, fired at his fore shoulder. As if nothing had hurt him whatever, the animal made a furious bound, and then stood with his bristles erected, and tufted tail curved over the back, a most formidable brute in appearance. While he was thus listening, and searching the neighborhood with his keen, small eyes, I planted another shot in his chest, which plowed its way through his body. Instead of falling, however, as I expected he would, he charged furiously in the direction the bullet had come, and as he rushed past me, another ball was fired, which went right through him. But still he kept on, until, within six or seven yards from the trees behind which Kalulu was crouching down on one side, and the helmet was resting behind another, he suddenly halted, and then dropped. But as I was about to advance on him with my knife to cut his throat, he suddenly started up. His eyes had caught sight of the little boy, Kalulu, and were then, almost immediately afterwards, attracted by the sight of the snowy helmet. These strange objects on either side of him proved too much for the boar. He darted on one side into a thick break, from which it was impossible to oust him, and as it was now getting late, and the camp was about three miles away, I was reluctantly obliged to return without the meat. On our way to camp we were accompanied by a large animal, which persistently followed us on our left. It was too dark to see plainly, but a large form was visible if not very clearly defined. It must have been a lion, unless it was the ghost of the dead boar. That night, about 11 p.m., we were startled by the roar of a lion, in close proximity to the camp. 
Soon it was joined by another, and another still, and the novelty of the thing kept me awake. I peered through the gate of the camp and endeavored to sight my rifle, my little Winchester, in the accuracy of which I had perfect confidence. But, alas, for the cartridges, they might have been as well filled with sawdust for all the benefit I derived from them. Disgusted with the miserable ammunition, I left the lions alone and turned in, with their roaring as a lullaby. That terrestrial paradise for the hunter, the valley of the pellucid Matumbu, was deserted by us the next morning for the settlement commonly known to the Wakawende as Imrima, with as much unconcern as though it were a howling desert. The village near which we encamped was called Itaga, in the district of Rusoa. As soon as we had crossed the river Matumbu, we had entered Yukawende, commonly called Kawende by the natives of the country. The district of Rusoa is thickly populated. The people are quiet and well disposed to strangers, though few ever come to this region from afar. One or two Wazawahili traders visit it every year or so from Pumbrua and Usoa, but very little ivory being obtained from the people, the long distance between the settlements serves to deter the regular trader from venturing hither. If caravans arrive here, the objective point to them is the district of Pambura, situated southwesterly one day's good marching, or, say, thirty statute miles from Imrima, or they make for Usoa, on the Tanganyika via Pambura, Katuma, Unyoembe, and Ugarwa. Usoa is quite an important district on the Tanganyika, populous and flourishing. This was the road we had intended to adopt after leaving Imrima, but the reports received at the latter place forbade such a venture. For Mapundu, the Sultan of Usoa, though a great friend to the Arab traders, was at war with the colony of the Wazavira, who we must remember were driven from Mapokwa and vicinity in Utenda, and who were said to have settled between Pambura and Usoa. It remained for us, like wise, prudent men, having charge of a large and valuable expedition on our hands, to decide what to do, and what route to adopt, now that we had approached much nearer to Ujiji than we were at Unyanyembe. I suggested that we should make direct for the Tanganyika by compass, trusting to no road or guide, but to march direct west until we came to the Tanganyika, and then follow the lake shore on foot until we came to Ujiji for it ever haunted my mind that if Dr. Livingston should hear of my coming, which he might possibly do if I traveled along any known road, he would leave, and that my search for him would consequently be a stern chase. But my principal men thought it better that we should now boldly turn our faces north and march for the Malagarazi, which was said to be the large river flowing from the east to the Tanganyika. But none of my men knew the road to the Malagarazi, Neither could guides be hired from Sultan Imrira. We were, however, informed that the Malagarazi was but two days' march from Imrira. I thought it safe in such a case to provision my men with three days' rations. The village of Itaga is situated in a deep mountain hollow, finely overlooking a large extent of cultivation. The people grow sweet potatoes, manoak, out of which tapioca is made, beans, and holocaust. Not one chicken could be purchased for love or money, and besides grain, only a lean, scraggly specimen of a goat, a long time ago imported from Uvinza, was procurable. 
October the 25th will be remembered by me as a day of great troubles. In fact, a series of troubles began from this date. We struck an easterly road in order to obtain a passage to the lofty plateau which bounded the valley of Imrira on the west and on the north. We camped after a two and a half hours march at its foot. The defile promised a feasible means of ascent to the summit of the plateau, which rose upward in a series of scarps a thousand feet above the valley of Imrira. While ascending that lofty arc of mountains which bounded westerly and northerly the basin of Himrira, extensive prospects southward and eastward were revealed. The character of the scenery at Yukawendi is always animated and picturesque, but never sublime. The folds of this ridge contain several ruins of bomas, which seem to have been erected during wartime. The Mabembe fruit was plentiful along this march, and every few minutes I could see from the rear one or two of men hastening to secure a treasure of it which they discovered on the ground. A little before reaching the camp I had shot at a leopard, but failed to bring him down as he bounded away. At night the lions roared as at the Matumba River. A lengthy march under the deep twilight shadows of a great forest, which protected us from the hot sunbeams, brought us, on the next day, to a camp newly constructed by a party of Arabs from Ujiji, who had advanced thus far on their road to Unyanyembe, but, alarmed at the reports of the war between Marumbu and the Arabs, had returned. Our route was along the right bank of the Rugafu, a broad, sluggish stream, well choked with the matete reeds and the papyrus. The tracks in the bois de vache of buffaloes were numerous and there were several indications of rhinoceros being near. In a deep clump of timber near this river, we discovered a colony of bearded and leonian-looking monkeys. As we were about leaving our camp on the morning of the 28th, a herd of buffalo walked deliberately into view. Silence was quickly restored, but not before the animals, to their great surprise, had discovered the danger which confronted them. We commenced stalking them, but we soon heard the thundering sound of their gallop after which it became a useless task to follow them, with a long march in the wilderness before one. The road led on this day over immense sheets of sandstone and iron ore. The water was abominable and scarce, and famine began to stare us in the face. We traveled for six hours, and had yet seen no sign of cultivation anywhere. According to my map, we were yet two long marches from the Malagarazi, if Captain Burton had correctly laid down the position of the river. According to the natives' account, we should have arrived at the Malagarazi on this day. End of chapter 11, part 1